Welcome to the Family Worship Companion, supplementing your personal reading of Scripture with a Christ-centered emphasis and real-life application for every member of the family. If you were to place all the important things in your life on a scale, where would you rank communion with God? The reason I ask is because our chapter today, Genesis 18, it shows God's desire to fellowship with his people, and Abraham, as the example, receiving that fellowship and enjoying it. The chapter also shows to us two important truths that God reveals to his servant. One relates to blessing, that of Isaac. The other relates to judgment regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. So in verses 1 through 4, we are told that Jehovah appeared unto Abraham. It is evident at various points and junctures through the Old Testament that the pre-incarnate Son of God reveals himself to his people. In fact, we have reference to the Lord in verse 1, 3, and 10 in this chapter. And it's very clear that Abraham is addressing the Lord specifically. There are two others with him. These appear to be angels, as we'll see especially in the next chapter. But the Lord is there, and this is the one that Abraham is fellowshipping with and enjoying company with. I think it's important to note in verses 5 through 8 how the Holy Spirit details Abraham's response to his visitors. There is liberality and there is hospitality. This characteristic exuded by Abraham here is considered vital in the life of the elder in the New Testament. And so, Taking that on board, while we're all in different circumstances and situations of life, we must see that when men are to lead in their community, when they are to be those that influence their community, hospitality is a crucial characteristic. In verses 9 through 15 then we have the message that contains the blessing that is being communicated to Abraham. The revelation shows that we're not dealing with an ordinary character here. The Lord knows that Sarah is going to conceive, knows when she's going to conceive. It says according to the time of life, which is another way of saying around this time next year, and also knows what she's going to conceive. She's going to conceive a son. In addition, we see that he discerns an inaudible laugh within Sarah and addresses it. Now, the question may be asked, why is Sarah laughing anyway? It may be that Abraham never even told her of what he was told in the previous chapter, or maybe didn't give her all the details. Perhaps he was holding back, concerned that he would elevate her hopes again and that it would cause more uncertainty or, or just difficulty within the home. Whatever the case, this message comes and she is rebuked for her unbelief. In verses 16 through 19, we learn that God has an opinion of his people and a note is given regarding Abraham that he will teach the coming generation both the authority of the Word of God, the importance of obedience to the Word of God, and the promises contained in the Word of God. You see that in verse 19. Following that, in verses 20 and 21, we get language that makes us go back to Genesis 4. We were told in that chapter that the blood of Abel ascended, cried from the ground up to God, here we have a similar idea, and God has come to see what's going on, as it were, and to exact judgment. Now, it's not like God doesn't know what's going on, but the language is anthropomorphic. It's showing that God is not doing this haphazardly. He knows what's happening, and the judgment will be measured 
and right. But this revelation of coming judgment draws out of Abraham a desire to intercede. And so from verse 22 through to the end of the chapter, we have this unusual prayer and exchange between God and Abraham. While at the same time this is going on and he's going down and down and down, God has sent two angels to go, not just to destroy the city, but to actually take those righteous people out, to remove them from the city. So it's it's unusual to really get clarity on what is happening here, but ultimately we see that God will do right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Absolutely he will. And so the revelation of God here is that as he sets in course to judge, nothing will change it. But the one aspect about his judgment in the world is in relation to his people, what will happen to his people, and he will make sure to deliver them. And so we come to application, and the first point, just to underline, is God's desire to fellowship with his people. This is not an Old Testament thing only. We see this in the New Testament, and even in Revelation 3 with the Laodicean church, the appeal of Christ in his letter is, I'm at the door, I'm looking entrance, if anyone will listen and open the door, I will fellowship with them. The same is true for you and me today. We should crave fellowship with our God and prioritize that in our lives. We also see why he comes to us or the kind of people he comes to particularly. In this portion, it comes immediately after the circumcision, which signifies, as we said, separation unto God. Now, Lot has not gone through that, and he's in the world. And so the angels go to Lot, but the Lord doesn't go to Lot. The Lord particularly comes to a separated people, separated from the world, onto God. Those are the ones that are most likely to hear from God from day to day. So make sure you take that to heart. Pull yourself out of the world in all of its deceit and all of its distraction. Make sure you prioritize fellowship with your God. Secondly, we learn that God's great works are tied to his word. In verse 14, the question is asked, is anything too hard for the Lord? And we're not to take that text and just apply it wherever we like, that God will do whatever I desire. It is tied to his word. He will fulfill his word no matter how impossible it appears. That's the proper context, and that's how to apply this verse. When God has given a word, when he has promised something, we are not to doubt it. And so think of it in terms of you, if you struggle with assurance and you're wondering, well, will God keep me? Uh, do I belong to him? You come back and you, you say, well, well, what does his word say? And no matter how you feel or how difficult your circumstances, is anything too hard for the Lord? Can he keep me? Will he finally bring me into heaven? Absolutely he will. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. He will fulfill his word. Thirdly, there's clearly a word here to fathers. Abraham's instruction of his household in verse 19 is an example for us in order to diligently teach those under our care. Now, we ask ourselves the question, if we have the opportunity to teach them once a week or twice a week or every day, what's best? If we have an opportunity to go to the house of God once a week or three or four times a week, what's best? Let us adopt the testimony of Abraham and be diligent in daily and regular use of the means of grace. Fourthly, there's a warning here concerning drawing from a passage like this application to natural disasters. 
In this passage, it's very clearly revealed what God is doing. But let us be careful when we, we look at natural disasters and then we say, well, God did this because there are so many wicked people over there or whatever. Unless it is revealed to us, like it's revealed to Abraham here, we don't know. Now, there is a message that comes to us from natural disasters. Jesus says, Luke 13, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. But that's the only message we're assured of. And we should be very careful. In fact, I would say avoid making declarations concerning what God is doing. We should just pull back and say, I don't know what God's doing here, but I do know this. We must all repent. Fifthly, whatever may be drawn from Abraham's praying, what we can see clearly is that the spiritual man will be prompted to pray. Leonard Ravenhill said many years ago that the prayer meeting is the Cinderella of the church. It's set aside, unimportant, and that ought not to be. If we are to walk in the footsteps of Abraham and be men and women of faith, we'll be often at the place of prayer. Sixthly and finally, a word here, especially for the children, just to underline a basic truth. Children, understand that righteousness is by faith. We learned that in Genesis 15, verse 6. Now, the reason I bring it up here is because this chapter deals with the righteous and the wicked. The way we think about that often is in categories of, you know, keeping God's law, breaking God's law. But, boys and girls, we have all broken God's law and we are all guilty. Go back to Genesis 15, verse 6. And if you want to be categorized by God as among the camp of the righteous, you need to trust in the Son of God. You need to go to Calvary and see there on the cross Jesus dying for sinners and paying the penalty for sinners. And then you come to him saying, Lord, I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. I need pardon. I need righteousness. And you ask for it. It's a work of God that makes us righteous by faith in Jesus Christ and we stay wicked by our unbelief and a rebellion against God.